Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Ifstecker. And I'm Oliver Brady. And on this podcast, we talk about how movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world in both historical fiction and medieval-esque fantasy. And then what we're going to do is we're going to address what they get right, mostly very little, what they get wrong, pretty much everything. And then it's going to tell us what this allows us to know about what modern people think about the medieval past and how it was back in the time of, you know, randomly murdering villagers and, you know, lords getting to sleep with everybody on the first night after they got married. <sighs> I believe that's called Primo Nocta. No, it's, it doesn't exist. And also, if it did, it would be Prima Nocta. So you're saying there's a chance it oh, did exist because it's got an actual name. It, it didn't. And, um, and it would be Prima Noctis. Fine. Okay, Sarah. Now, as you can tell from the way I just said that and the way Sarah just shut me down, as always, <laughs> even though I'm clearly talking historical fact here. Uh, Sarah, why did we decide to do this podcast? Uh, so we decided to do this, or I at least decided to do this podcast because I'm professionally a medieval historian. I have a PhD in medieval history. I teach medieval history. And I'm interested in how people think about the medieval world because I have to explain to my students why their ideas about the medieval world are usually wrong. <laughs> and Ollie, why did you want to do this podcast with me? I like dudes with swords. And dudes with swords. Uh, and Sarah, we like to watch movies in this podcast. We're, we're going to read books eventually as soon as I learn. But what movie did we watch this week? Today we watched it 2006's Tristan and Isolde. Tristan and Isolde? This sounds yes. awesome. It sounds like the kind of movie which is going to be full of fun and frolics and not be po-faced in any way, shape, or form. Am I correct? No. Oh, crap. Um, but at least the two leads are going to be like super charismatic people. Like, Who's playing Tristan? James Franco. James who might Franco. be one of the less charismatic leading men that I have heard of. He is very pretty. He is. And also, funny story, I have not actually met James Franco, but I know a lot of people who know James Franco because we were technically doing our PhDs at the same university at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I knew people who took classes with him. You know people who know James Franco? Yes. And what did they say about him? That he didn't talk much in class is the main thing that people said about him. Also, that he did actually show up in class the morning after hosting the Oscars and that he was wearing a hoodie over a tux. Nice. This is the... Um, so, that's my gossip about James Franco. This is the Oscars where he didn't give Anne Hathaway anything. Like, he just kind of stone-faced her? Yeah, apparently he kind of did that in class, too. Oh, good job. I bet you that's, <laughs> I bet you that's just a character he's doing. Maybe. And then, Isolde is played by a very beautiful young woman named Sophia Miles, who I'm sure went on to do amazing things with the rest of her career that I looked up and couldn't find her in anything else except for a future yeah. movie that we're going to watch called Outlander. Oh, mm -hmm. it's exciting. It is very exciting. Not the TV show Outlander, which is just filth, <laughs> but the movie Outlander starring Jesus. Um, and then we... Beowulf Jesus. <laughs> Beowulf Jesus. And then we have... A character named Mark. Mark, who, with his most unassuming of names, is also a most unassuming guy. But then they managed to cast Sarah's favorite actor, or maybe one of Sarah's favorite actors, 
Rufus, he's in the top five, at least. He's in the top five. Rufus Sewell, the beautiful, beautifully high-cheekboned man. Who also has more charisma in basically his little finger than James Franco might have in his entire body. It is crazy that Rufus Sewell, and we'll, we'll get into this, but the fact that he is cuckolded by James Franco in this movie is, it's just insane to me. It's very much this sort of him yeah. moment. <laughs> kind of was like, what? Really? Um, then we have, uh, we need a bad guy. And if we're going to get a bad guy, it's going to be Mark Strong. Um, Mark Strong from the Robin Hood episode. And he'll be coming up in at least two other episodes that we do over the next while. Um, he is pretty much just a bad guy. <laughs> like that's, that's what he does. That's, that's him. And he's very good at what he does. Yep. He is, he is a solid bad guy. That, might actually be one of the better parts of this movie. Mm. Then we have uh, a young Henry Cavill as uh, Melot, or Melo, as I'm going to pronounce. Um, because, right. Yeah, but I think they, they do pronounce the T in the movie. I think it was Melot is kind of how they Melot, pronounced yeah. it, mm. but I could be remembering that wrong. Uh, and this is obviously Superman stroke the man from Uncle stroke the bad guy in a new Mission Impossible movie, which I haven't seen yet, but I so want to. I'm yeah. so excited about this. Exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my response was very much, oh, so this is what he was in before he was in Superman. Yeah, he did he do the Tudors as well? Yes, I believe he plays Charles Brandon, who marries Gabrielle Anwar. Ah, I think I think I'm right about that. So he gets to live it I up. might have to double check. He gets to live my dreams of sleeping with Gabrielle Anwar and being Superman. Yes, Damn. I might have to look that up. I could be wrong, but he is definitely in the two. Then we get, uh, <laughs> I love the little notes that are written for me, which is, Ollie will need to pronounce this name for me. The name is David. And I meant the character's <laughs> name, not the actor's oh. name. I'm Jewish. I've got the name David down. Are you sure? Uh, well, David O'Hara is his name, and uh, he's playing King Donica, right? Which is Donica. weird, because you're looking at it, and you're like, there's no way to get a C, an A between the N and the C there. But um, the D-O-double-N would be pronounced Donna. Um, so and then the DH just disappears the, yep, at the end? The DH just disappears. We don't pronounce that in Irish. Okay. Yeah, so that's Irish is guess. not one of my languages. It's, Maybe one of these it's days. It's barely one of mine. <laughs> I don't even know if I can <laughs> count myself as a pure Irishman. And then uh, the important thing about him is he played Stephen the Irish guy in Braveheart because he obviously didn't have yeah. a second name. He just is Stephen. Right. I mean, I guess is also his thing is playing token Irishmen in other movies, which is funny because I think he might be Scottish. I think he is Scottish, but he does <laughs> a great job of playing token Irish dude. Now, yeah. we're going to start into our... Uh, <laughs> we're going to, and Sarah and myself have been laughing about this, but um, we're going to try and run through the movie as quickly as possible. Um, because gonna do our best. The last one I actually edited. It took us an hour and seven minutes to get through the movie, so we're gonna try our best to get through this one a lot quicker. Even though this is a long movie and it's got some boring stretches, we should be able to get through it much faster. But this is where we talk about what actually happens in the movie, and um, we still don't have music, so uh, I'm going to sing this in. And there's a section called Innumeratio, and it goes like this here. Enumeratio. Which is exactly how a choir of angels would sound if they were to sing that song. 
Yes. Exactly. We definitely don't need to replace that with that with other kinds oh, of music. Oh, we will eventually, Sarah. I, if I can replace <laughs> that with Billy Joel, I will. Um, how does the movie start? The movie does an impressive job of managing to annoy me just from the opening text crawl, which is a fairly impressive feat. Uh, the introductory text crawl tells us that we are in the dark ages. <laughs> now, myself and Sarah obviously live in different places in the world. I live in the wondrous Ireland and she lives in the, I'm going to say somewhere in the States. I'm not sure where, probably Indiana or somewhere, right? But um, Yeah, I live in the state of Indiana. It's very flat. I'm sure it's a beautiful, wonderful place. You're just trying to make it sound like it is, right? But uh, she lives in Indiana and... I got a message from her as we were watching this. As soon as it pops up Dark Ages, and the message basically just says, fuck this. Which, <laughs> which is the correct response, because they're not Dark Ages, as Sarah has explained before. That's just the way that we as revisionist historians like to say it was. Right, as um, historian, well, not real historians anymore, but non-historians and historians a couple of centuries ago like to talk about the Middle Ages as being the Dark Ages uh, because of an idea that nothing happened, that everything was just horrible and violent all the time. To the extent that anyone thinks there is any validity to the term, it would be in this exact period immediately after the fall of Rome. But even that idea is now very much out of fashion as we increasingly acknowledge even some amount of continuity following the fall of Rome. And that early medieval Europe was far more economically stable and advanced than we think it is. Exactly. Um, And when I say exactly, I mean, Sarah has explained this to me several times and I'm still going to call it the Dark Ages because she gets so angry when I do it. Um, just like you're going to keep saying primo nocta and pretending that was a thing i'm not pretending it was a thing <laughs> it was definitely a thing i i'm fairly certain i saw it no. in a documentary called bravi heart or something now um the movie starts and it where we learned that the uh british people are divided and are trying to stand up to the evil irish which as a man from Ireland, I was delighted to find out that it was our chance back in the 5th century to throw a little bit of hurt their way, right? But apparently we were very mean and evil and bad guys, but, you know, it happens. You can't always be shamrocks and leprechauns and drinking until you fall down, all right? But in comes Mark of Cornwall. Mark of Cornwall played by the eminently sexy Rufus Sewell. And he unites them together. Now, he is the man who's going to teach the British how to stand up to Ireland, something that historically they had a very hard time doing. Of course, because you know, <laughs> they didn't just subjugate our entire people and kill half of us. No, no, they didn't do that. No, of course, of course not. We whitewashed that from history. Um, <clears throat> as Sarah told me, this didn't actually happen. Shock that the movie <laughs> just made this up. Right? But we get our main character then young Tristan and he's bonding with his daddy now since we're watching a medieval movie Sarah what's going to happen to Tristan's dad come home without something for your lady you'll have hell to pay well dads might be the only people who in medieval movies die more than women Mm -hmm. so obviously this guy is immediately on his way out oh we don't he's definitely going to die but the Kicker for me is that his dad dies because Tristan can't keep his feckin' mouth shut and he can't do what he's told and he basically causes his dad to get stabbed by one of these nasty, nasty Irishmen and then he even sneaks out again, Tristan does, 
And Mark of Cornwall comes in and gets his hand cut off because he's trying to protect Tristan. Yep. So basically everything is Tristan's fault. That might be a theme in this movie. I think everything is Tristan's fault except for the stuff which later on is Isolde's fault. Right. Um, they are, it's partly his fault still. It's, oh, it is partly his fault, but definitely there are some things which are like, yeah, I'm not sure you're really... <laughs> you're not really off the hook here, right? So right. Uh, what also happens when Mark gets his hand off, cut off and uh, Tristan's dad dies, sir? Well, his mother also dies because otherwise we might have to have more than one woman in this movie. And that would be horrible. Um, and then we also see baby Tristan practicing sword fighting with another boy named uh, Malote, which is our lovely foreshadowing that he is definitely going to turn out to be a bad guy. Yeah. So he gets adopted by Mark and Mark's wife, who I believe is nameless. Um, and Malote uh, acts like a dick to young Tristan because Tristan won't fight but it turns out Tristan's like some sort of god of war and beats Malote and like three or four other boys up with his wooden sword and then we kind of jump forward still won't fight he's got the heart of a lion just need some time why'd you take off your helmet you're going to cry my father died too, but you don't see me crying. Mello! Right, run. Find another trapdoor to hide under. Coward. That's it. Like, that's. It's like Tristan is a young boy, and then he's walking along as his young boy, and then suddenly he's James Franco age man. And then for the rest of the movie, it's James it's Franco. James Franco. We lose little boy who. Uh, he looks very familiar to me, that little kid does. Because. Oh, I didn't look up the children. He's the little boy in love, actually. Oh, hmm. neat. Hmm. That's exciting. Yeah, and he, he then becomes, he's newt in um, the Maze Runner series of movies. Hmm. I did not see this. Hmm. Yeah, they're not particularly good. So, um, <laughs> so he's dead. That in mind. We've jumped forward and then we change country and we go to Ireland. And in Ireland, we meet Isolde. Isolde is the king's daughter we're at the funeral of the queen of course yeah. because all women are dead yeah we can't have more than one or two in the movie so she has to have died um and we find out that isolde is engaged or has been promised to marriage marry morholt who is as sarah has written down here for me right i i i, I, I like to read sarah's <laughs> notes because she's really good is isolde is very pretty um and he is not <laughs> <laughs> He is also super creepy. Um, uh, he's, you know, one of those people that you can demonstrate as a bad guy by the fact that he is hitting on her in an incredibly uncomfortable and disgusting way. It is. And then he basically just tells her that I've talked to your dad and because I'm good at killing people, he's told me that I can have you. And it, he definitely says, have you? Yeah, like it's not great. It's not great at all. Um, and then she, as a proper feminist does, starts complaining about how she's treated as chattel. And uh, yes. how arranged marriages are wrong. And as Sarah likes to point out to me a lot, were arranged marriages wrong back in the time between daughters of kings? No, this is one of our many moments of having a 21st century feminist dropped in the middle of, in this case, the 5th century. 
and all of a sudden complaining that women should not be forced into arranged marriages, which is an odd thing for her to complain about, given that every single woman of the nobility would have expected to have an arranged marriage, because the point of marriage was not love, it was politics. Politics and money. Love is who you have your affair with, Sarah. That's what I believe. That's what I Exactly. And that is the point of this movie. hmm. We then jump back to England, where we find out that Tristan is this amazing warrior, and he's Mark's champion, and he's he's also you know he's a handsome like i'm not gonna say it like james james frank is a good looking dude and he's got an amazing flowing set of locks he clearly knows how to use a blow dryer Mm -hmm. um and then we get an attack from morholt and they steal slaves and james franco says but mark we can go and save the slaves so they organize an attack when would you strike at once throw everything we have at them they're hoping you'll do that. On horse, they outnumber us two to one. You'll lead the men straight to their death. So we do nothing! Connick would like that even more, me to lose face in front of the other tribes. Counterattack against the Irish, and they start fighting with the Irish. Um, they're getting the best of them, and then obviously because it's <laughs> it's the Dark Ages, Sarah, so we can't just Indeed. we can't just have warriors fight. We have to have the Irish warriors start killing some of them slaves. <sighs> Right, I think he actually yells, kill the slaves. He, um, he yells, kill the slaves. <laughs> because I'm obviously not defending slavery by any means, but the point of slavery isn't vic- isn't just a vindictiveness, it's economic profit. Mm-hmm. Nobody's really going to insist on the fact that it is better to kill all of the slaves uh, than to have them, I guess, return to where they come from. Yeah, just run away, come back and steal slaves another day. Right, they would just have another raid off the coasts of Britain, yes. um, which was a thing that the Irish did, yeah. um, was have slave raids off the coasts of Britain. That's how we got St. Patrick. But more yep. aside, but aside from that, we're going to talk <laughs> about the fact that Tristan beats Morholt in a fight, kills him, but Morholt has stabbed Tristan or cut his chest with his poisoned blade so that Tristan gets into basically a coma, into um, a kind of a really, really deep sleep, so much so that people believe he has died. Now, I have seen this in movies and TV shows, and I've done quite a little research into this. There is no poison that has ever existed, ever, that will convince people who are doing even the most rudimentary medical uh check on you that you are dead really yeah there are things which will slow your heart rate and stuff but your breathing will still be happening your heart so rate romeo and juliet too is wrong romeo and juliet is just all bull i mean if your heart so if your heart and breathing stop for that long you'd literally be brain dead yeah that makes sense so you still have to have a minimum number of heartbeats per minute no matter, right. no matter what happens, you have to have that blood flowing. You have to have breathing coming in. So po- there are some things which should put you into a really, really deep sleep, but you're still going to have 10 to 15 heartbeats per minute, which means that if you have your hand on somebody's neck checking their pulse, you're going to get one every four seconds. So like, are these people putting their fingers, check the pulse, and after two seconds going, nah, there's none, he's dead. <laughs> so Maybe they're just kind of looking at it and be like, eh, he looks kind of dead. He does. He looks a bit gray in the face. He smells bad too, so he's probably dead. Now, obviously, because he's a good Christian warrior, um, and they were 
Christians at the time, I believe, that they're impressed because there's definitely a church in the little village where Mark is. They have to have the most Christian of all burials, which is they put them on a boat and send them out to sea and fire burning arrows at them. Yeah, the burning arrows, I guess, you know, miss, unfortunately, you know, which is, I guess, good because he's not, in fact, dead. Um, It's also, I looked this up, even among pagan Anglo-Saxons, they actually would have preferred either burial with grave goods or they would have cremated you and then buried the urn. Yeah. This whole boat thing, which they seem very into in this movie, is not anything that would have been practiced in 5th fifth, fifth century England by either Christians or pagans. Yeah, they would have returned them to the land, returned them to mother's breast. That's how they used to, that was the, uh, the Christian Anglo-Saxon phrase. So you're returning them to the earth. But like I said, we, we I don't think we've had a movie yet where we haven't had... Um, Oh no, yeah, Three Musketeers didn't have a Viking funeral. But then, as we said, Three Musketeers was kind of pushing beyond the Dark Ages. <clears throat> right, they know that it's modernity, apparently, yeah. so. <laughs> but he's not dead, sir. He's just he's not appearing to be dead. And the boat, despite the fact it doesn't make any sense whatsoever, manages to get past the tide and get out into the Irish Sea and get the whole way across to Ireland. Now, it's not that far, right? But the important thing is... It's not the distance that's the issue. It's the fact that it has to beat the tide, which there's no way in hell it would have got out past breakers uh, mm. in order to make it Ireland. But apparently he does. And he washes up there and he gets found by Isolde, who's just out walking with her maid. Coincidentally, Coincidentally. he just happens to get found by the Princess of Ireland. It could have been anybody who found her, but it was her and her lady-in-waiting, which is pronounced Brené. That G in the middle is silent. Brene. So okay. it's Brene. Uh, so for some reason, they save his life, which doesn't make any sense. There's no reason to do this, but they save Especially his life. Especially because they must know that he's British. Oh, they can definitely tell he's British. They can or tell Anglo-Saxon. because he's yeah. got his own teeth and uh, he's got that wavy hair. No Irishman ever had wavy hair. Um, <clears throat> but they save him. They bring him into a little crofter's hut or a little uh, fisherman's hut, which is beside the, the coast. Um, Tristan strips off and we find out that he's well muscled and he's got a six pack and stuff which of course means that Isolde is totally into this right um of course we then have a scene where he basically threatens them we have a couple of scenes where they start to talk to each other what's your name oh i think it's better we don't bother with names how can i thank you if i don't have your name just did and then we find out that they fall in love and they totally bone down. They do. Everybody falls in love with people that they've known for like two days That's it's, and hung out with in a cave. It's happened to me several the amount of times I've met a girl and then like two days later I've been in a cave with her. I'm like, yeah, I'm in love with you now. It's just something about caves. It's the, it is it is a cave story. That's how it works. But um, the lady in waiting is not thrilled because she knows that he's, she's engaged. Um, but... You know, she goes with it because it's the princess and she's not going to open her mouth because, I mean, this old would probably have her killed. Right. And she also is concealing her identity to Tristan. So yes. she's actually using her maid's name, I believe, and saying that she is a lady in waiting. And she has never told him exactly who she is. So in effect, she's basically catfished him in person. She pretty much has. It's just like 90 Day Fiance. It's like he needs to get his Irish passport and uh, she's been like treating him 
treating him to some sex, but at the same time, she's not really, uh, she's not really invested in it. She's not even going to tell him who he is. But, but you know, because of Brexit, you can't blame him. Oh, that's true. But I mean, in fairness, we all voted for Brexit. Um, <laughs> Tristan's boat gets discovered uh, in a scene that I find hilarious because a dude's just walking along. He's like, oh, a boat. And he walks over to the boat and uh, he finds Tristan's sword in it and he brings it back to Donica <laughs> and then everyone's like, oh, there must be an Englishman on the like there must be an Englishman. Like why would like why would this make you think there's an Englishman free? Let's go on a manhunt. Yeah, it's sort of bizarre. Um, the boat also is about the least seaworthy thing ever. It literally looks like it's about to break into pieces, and yet somehow he manages then to get in the boat and sail it back to Cornwall. Yeah, and Isolde is there, and then she finds out <gasps> Morhalt has been killed. She looks so upset. Yeah, when what she should have, she was thinking, oh man, Tristan just left two minutes ago. If I'd have found this out five minutes ago, I could have told him to stay. But no. I could have just kept him in that cave. Just kept him in that cave because like he's dead or whatever. But that's how it goes. And Tristan gets washed away. Or sorry, he goes back to England and then just shows up and everyone's happy that he's back. Yep. Everyone's very happy to see him. They're kind of bothering him. Everyone's just kind of like pawing at him. And it's like, can't you just like let this guy rest? He's clearly really tired. <laughs> exactly. And then we get uh, Dunica. And Dunica is in consultation with, I believe, Victred. Um, I don't yes. think they actually meet at this point, but it's clearly implied that he's having information given to him by some British dude. And the idea is that he's going to propose this peace treaty and Isolde is going to be the prize and whoever wins the prize will marry into the Irish royal family. Um, Which is a terrible peace treaty. It's a terrible, terrible peace treaty. And whoever it is will then be in legion with the Irish, right? So, right. as Sarah said, since Mark was basically the king of England at the stage, he was the leader of them, couldn't he just have gone over and said, hey, this is my incredibly beautiful young daughter, could you marry her for us, Mark? That would have made much more sense and is in fact how arranged marriages generally worked in the Middle Ages, that you would actually pick a person and arrange a marriage between that person and your daughter. Uh, that's the thing. is, But obviously they think that Mark is going to be too strong to, um, to fall for any of the bullshit. So they want to have their own guy in there as the acting king so they bring about this idea of a tournament and they're going to rig it so they're going to have one particular dude win right and they want it to be victor played by mark strong but tristan says to mark i'll go over and win you a queen i'd need an infallible champion (laughs) you're not yet healed this trip will be my tonic i'll be ready you know I will. What's the source of this fervor? Let me go and win you a wife. She can make peace without spilling one drop of blood. Um, because I'm the right. bestest of the best swordsmen that ever bested at all. And um so he goes over and he's gonna fight for uh Mark. Um he doesn't even know it's his all that he's fighting for because she's covered in mm-hmm. some really weird looking veils. Yeah, they just kind of drape her in a bunch of random cloths to an extent that she is completely unrecognizable. Mm-hmm. So uh, he has no idea it's his old. 
she has this minute of, oh, I know that guy. And is very excited because she thinks he's winning her for himself, but he is, in fact, winning her for Mark. Exactly. Um, And then we find out that Tristan, uh, the British champion, is from Spain. Yep, it's in this scene that they start to refer to him as Tristan of Aragon. Uh, Aragon, or if I'm going to be fancy about it, Aragon, (laughs) is a... (laughs) He's just pronounced that with a slightly... (laughs) Aragon. Is one of the kingdoms that comprised what is now Spain. Um, my guess here is that they know that one of the wives of Henry VIII was Catherine of of Aragon, um, because she was from Spain, <laughs> and that they therefore, I guess, thought maybe it was a place in England and decided to name him that. Uh, yeah, I th- that has to be the only reason. But he ends up fighting Victor in the final. He beats him. Um, and then Kristen of Aragon goes up to claim his prize for Mark. And then when she takes off her veil, he sees that it's Isolde. And then he realizes, and you can see it on his face. He knows exactly what's about to go down. He's after getting his girlfriend and engaging her to Mark, the future king of England. His father figure. His father so- figure. Set up for Love Triangle. Oh, it's set up to be a real Lancelot and Guinevere. It is. So Mark and Isol get married, and it's a really nice, fancy wedding, um, which Sarah tells me <laughs> is not something from the 5th century. Yeah, so uh, I have actually done a little bit of studying of medieval food and food culture. And there's this suckling pig and just uh, in general, the whole food spread looks very much like cuisine of the 13th, 14th centuries Mm. and does not especially look like cuisine of the 5th century, which would have been much less fancy, to be honest. Um, (laughs) It was much less kind of elaborate and beautiful and decorative. How much less fancy would it have been? Are we talking troughs? Yeah, I mean, it's a little more just not quite troughs, but it's a little more just kind of like here is a large hunk of meat. Whereas uh, later medieval food is very interested in doing things like let's make sure that our hunk of meat, to, you know, is then perhaps kind of reconstructed to look like the original animal, or maybe let's even do this crazy thing that we're actually cooking a chicken, but then we're going to rearrange it and make it look like a peacock. Hmm. Um, and they just have these like very elaborate, attractive plates of food in medieval, um, basically like kind of high court cuisine, and that's what we're seeing here. Whereas, yeah, we basically would have had like just hunks of meat, um, you know, roasted over a fire now, in the 5th century. Speaking of hunks of meat, Isolde has the choice now where she's been married off to Mark and she's in love with Tristan. Now, it's an arranged marriage. She can't get out of it. There's no way she's getting out of it. And she's married to Rufus Sewell, who's a goddamn beautiful Yeah, man. my feeling is she really should make the best of this from the perspective of medieval arranged marriages. And if you're thinking about the actual, you know, age difference between Sophia Miles and Rufus Sewell, it's only about 10 years, which is actually pretty good as far as medieval arranged marriages go. Mm-hmm. He's really pretty attractive. He's very nice to her. And she really should just maybe kind of make the best of it and chill with being his wife. But instead, she pretty much immediately just basically tells Tristan that she wants to sleep with him. Yeah, she says, I want to sleep with you. She takes him aside and she says, oh, we're totally going to fuck down. And 
Tristan starts acting like a spoiled little brat at this point. But then we have one of my favourite scenes in all the movies we've seen, where Tristan meets Isolde outside the uh, the antechamber, or is in an antechamber, and Mark comes around the corner when they're clearly having an awkward moment. She was about to basically say to him, I'm going to take you out back and you know give you what for or whatever. And Mark comes in and is like, oh, I'm glad that you two seem to be getting on well. And the two of them basically say, we're going to bone down, Mark. Is all. I was trying to explain to Tristan the importance of love. Seems you might live without it. Why? There are other things to live for. Duty. Honor. They are not life, Tristan. They are the shells of life. And empty ones, if in the end all they hold are days and days without love. Love is made by God. Ignore it and you suffer as you cannot imagine. Then I will no longer live without it. <clears throat> good. Very good. Come. We'll be late. And, and he's just like, it's so nice that you're friends. It's so nice that you guys are getting along. You're about the same age and everything. Maybe you two can be friends. Like, <laughs> what the hell is wrong with you, Mark? It's like, come it is, on, dude. This is this. You is should dumb. figure this out. It is absolutely shocking to me that this here is even remotely close to something that would happen in real life. Uh, Mark, um, he's not an evil dude he's upset that she doesn't love him but he says like he'll be nice to her and maybe she will fall in love with him eventually right because also in medieval arranged marriages everyone is genuinely very concerned when their wives aren't madly in love with them yeah of course that's i mean why wouldn't you be so then we find that tristan is all start to have an affair because they just cannot stop themselves because the sheer amount of sexual tension between them sarah it was like smoldering off the screen I may they actually be, have no sexual they tension. They have zero sexual tension. They, <laughs> they have negative sexual tension. I was sitting while watching this movie, and let's just say I had a lady with me, and the sexual tension dissolves between us from watching this movie. <laughs> That's not a true story, but just imagine that that is something that happened. It was yeah. ridiculous how little attraction there is between the two people. And of course, they're, they're super yeah. subtle about it. Yeah, this might be the least subtle extramarital affair in world history. Um, they usually have sex in a garden that you can see from the windows of the palace. You can see it from the windows of the palace, and it's also 20 yards from the main road into Cornwall Town. Right. How are they not getting caught constantly? Because uh, Branya, uh, the um, lady-in-waiting, has been covering for them. Uh, including this one point where she goes out and she gets soaking wet, pun intended, um, in a rainstorm and then sneaks back in and gets back into bed wet and Mark <laughs> still listens to it. Like, it's like... He I is no clearly idea. not very bright. Yeah. Um, and then they're, they keep talking about how it was an accident. Like, they genuinely are like, oh, I don't want to sleep with you. I don't want to have this affair. But every time I stumble on or I, get, I have a drink of wine, it's like I fall and I impale myself on your member. Yeah, it's... Guys, you're you're not trying. This isn't what trying looks like. It's not 
that hard to not have sex with someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tristan obviously then starts acting like a spite little prick again. He's basically bitching behind Mark's back and just basically being a dick, right? Um, they nearly get caught, but they get away with it. Uh, the lady in waiting's like, I told you we're going to get caught. And then it's always like, but I didn't. I'm tired of this. Tired of lying for you. Sick of it. Then don't. Right. This Wicked, however, finally figures out something is going on because how could he have possibly guessed? They're so subtle. It's not like they're holding hands in public or anything like that. They are. There's a scene where they hold hands in public. Uh, yes, in a market, he just walks up behind her and kind of whispers in her ear and then holds her hand. Victor sees this and he's like, uh, uh, the plot thinkings. Yes. So he is hoping to conspire with Donica, who is, of course, Isolde's father, to use this affair to embarrass and thereby overthrow Mark. Yeah, so Donica comes over on a state visit and they're having a nice, uh, they're having a nice meetup. I think they're blessing the union, I think is the way to describe it. Yes. And uh, it's also when they're crowning uh, Mark uh, as king. Yes, and um, her as well as his wife. As his wife, who's going to be queen. But Isolde sneaks out for a kiss with Tristan. Because that's what you always do at large parties in your honor, is you sneak out in the middle to continue your extramarital affair. Yeah, and Victred has it inside his head. He's like, I know what I'm going to do. So he organizes a nighttime uh, stroll with the old horses between himself and Donica and Mark. And they come along uh, to the little garden where Tristan and Isolde are agreeing to never sleep with each other again because she's the queen now. And in order to do this, they decide to have a really super passionate kiss in full view of everyone. Please don't leave me. Please. I see how it is in Cornwall. My money is good enough. My alliance is good enough. But my daughter, you pass among your lieutenants like a whore. It's not like... I see no relation to me here. Yep, so they get caught in the act because of their subtlety. Mm -hmm. They're just so subtle. It's shocking that they got caught. Yeah, it's 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 amazing. I it this is it's so subtle, it makes twists in movies like The Sixth Sense just seem blatant in comparison. I mean I was so surprised. I really didn't think they were gonna get caught. I thought those two were gonna make it. But what I think is really weird about this is because Mark has been cuckolded, all of the other nobles kind of ditch him. Yeah, nobody wants to follow a beta cuck. <laughs> it's just so <laughs> bad. Um, so he's still the king. All of the other nobles ditch him. The Irish decide they're going to attack. 
Victor's got his men there, but they can't get in because it's a nice big fortress. And then enter Melo, or Melot, Melot, and his stupid scheming ways. He decides to tell Victor all about the secret passage that himself and Tristan had discovered all those years ago as boys. Um, and it's a secret back way into the palace in Cornwall or the keep in Cornwall. And then Victor decides to sneak in there. Victor also, you know, basically like pats Melot on the back and is like, you're so great. I'll like, maybe I'll make you king. And for some reason, because apparently Melot is an idiot, he believes him. I mean, Melot, who's at some point doesn't seem to understand that Victor is also British and would be the king. Let's be honest. Our people need a stronger chief. Who might that be, Wicked? Mello. For too long, the ablest among us has been denied his rightful place. I pledge him my allegiance and offer my services as his second. I like this plan. And also just betrayed Mark. So yeah. he's clearly like, ah, yes, this person who's clearly a an active traitor is going to be a really good person to ally with that I can definitely trust. Yeah. And while they're sneaking in, we get the whole ending to the Tristan and Isolde affair, which is them saying, I'm sorry, Mark, but we had met two weeks before, and therefore we were in love. And like, this is, see, this is the thing that doesn't get me. Mark is such a good dude, right? He's such a nice guy. He's been really sweet to her. He's been super good to Tristan in taking him in and then raising him as his own and giving him a high seat of honor or whatever. I am 100% certain that the Mark we see in this movie, if Tristan had said, listen, I just won Isolde, but during my time when I was in England, I fell in love with her. We've met before and we're totally going to bone down. Mark would be like, yeah, you're basically my son. I'm going to adopt you officially. And we're going to marry off the future king of England to the future queen of Ireland. That is true. That is actually a very plausible thing that could have happened. Yeah, based on the way he's represented in the movie. That's what I think right. Mark would have done. Because what he does yeah. here at the end is he finds out she's cheating him. He's found out his son's betrayed him. And he says, like, all you had to do was just not bang her, Tristan. Like, he doesn't say it quite in the way I just said it. But yeah, you could have just not had sex, basically. Tell me! You don't know what you have done! Everything is destroyed! Everything! All because you did not have enough! He's also very forgiving, considering that the fact that they had sex just basically ruined his entire life and the imaginary unification of England. Yeah, and he says, basically, you can go. He lets them away, and he puts them on a boat and says, you can go. Now, just disappear into the night, and I'll leave you off to do it. Which is what the two of them want. I told him about Ireland. He's given us our freedom. However, Tristan realises that he could never trust us all. She'd be going around slipping and landing on every member I mean, sometimes around. you just fall and then just all of a sudden you're in the middle of having sex because Sarah, you slipped and fell. It just, it, it's just, that's how it works. It's happened to me a bunch of times. I just and constantly. Just, it's like I'm walking along. I'm like, what's this? Is this, is there something spilt on the floor? Slip, boom. Myself and the waiter are having sex. It's like, 
it's the just, I mean, that's how most sex starts. I'm, it, I'm almost certain that's how all sex starts. <laughs> Tristan then decides, no, I have to go and save Mark. Dude, you've been fucking his wife. Right, this is a little late to develop a sense of honor, Tristan. But he goes back to do it. Uh, There's a siege going on. Um, He tells Sophia that, uh, or she says, why does loving you feel so wrong? Because it is wrong (laughs) in every possible (laughs) way. There is no way in which this isn't wrong. It's been wrong since the beginning. And uh, like, it's not true love. Like they think it's true love, but they're, they're, 15, 16, 17, whatever they Right, it's like, like, come on, kids. Just shut the fuck up. Yeah, you're just going through some hormones. Also, haven't you seen Rufus Sewell? He's so much the better it's choice. Like, you, you should just stick with him. Stick with Ruf. Stick with the old Sewell. But Victor has been leading an army against uh, the castle. He's going to sneak some men in through this secret passage. Um, the same way as Tristan's been sneaking in the secret passages. But he's going to sneak his way in through the secret passage to raise the uh, portcullis to allow people to get in and basically kill all of the Brits which are inside. They attack and they're coming up and it's very hard for um, Mark and his men to defend against them. But luckily for them, Tristan comes running along the back passage and he discovers a dying Melot or Melot because Victor has obviously just stabbed him. And the two of them because make he's again. a treacherous person, and so shockingly enough, he couldn't actually be trusted. Stabbed Good job, him. Malote. Yeah, like, what are you thinking is going to happen, Malote? He's literally a prick. But they make friends again. Malote says, make sure you build my boat for the funeral, which is one of the stupidest things I've ever heard. It's not a thing. They don't even have funeral boats, first of all. And second of all, I don't even think in cultures that do have funeral boats, somebody building your boat for you is not actually a real thing. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Tristan, I'm for the worms. Swear to me that you are true. As we were brothers. Build my boat. They end up killing Victor and his men. Um... Tristan gets mortally wounded but manages to cut off uh, Victor's head, manages to beat him in, in, in battle or whatever. Mark walks out to the front of the siege where he raises the thing and walks out. There's like seven men with him and they're facing against the entire Irish army and the British kings who've turned their back on him. But because he holds up Victor's severed head, all of the Brits are like, yeah, oh, he's a man again. I know he was cuckolded, but he's our dude. So, right, he reestablished his masculinity by displaying a man's severed head. It's it's the only way to do it. Um, and the Brits. It's really that's how it. you know somebody's a real man is that they kill something and then display its head. That's what I've heard. And you have to make <laughs> sure that when you've displayed the head, you let them know that it was you who killed it yourself. Yep. But it's very important. The Brits side with them and they basically slaughter those nasty, nasty, mean little Irishmen, right? Um, They're so mean. Yeah. Uh, the Mark, poor British. Mark sneaks out, or sne- sneaks out, sneaks out in the middle of the battle to bring Tristan to the river so that he can kiss Isolde one last time and die in her arms in a very beautiful and touching scene where what she really should have been doing the whole time is, dude, we were out on the boat 
an hour ago and the two of us were live, we had gold because Mark is such a cook that he actually paid for us to leave. I mean, I would pay them to get the fuck out of there, too, if I were him. That is true. But they were on their way. They were leaving. And you went back in and got yourself killed. Yeah. Yeah. But Mark... And then Mark was nice enough to bring his almost dead body to her. And so that they could have a hug and a kiss and stuff. And it's like, oh, fine. I've got you there. But... They they have to kiss and they're dead. And then we find out that there's no women left because she just disappears for some reason. Um, but Mark has united Britain and is now the king, um, which I believe is a thing that actually happened. It is not. Isolde also inexplicably reads a poem by John Donne. <laughs> John Donne, who lived in the 16th and early 17th centuries. Yeah, so she's she's really a woman before her time. She's uh she's read John Donne. I think she's really like read Betty Friedan. She clearly understands modern feminism. I mean, just she just clearly like got a lot has a lot of ti- has a kind of a time traveling library together. Uh, yeah, they seem to have a lot of ideals and thoughts and inclinations that wouldn't have been normal in the fifth century. I imagine. Yep. Hmm. And that's the end of the movie. I think we actually managed to get through this at least quicker than we have gotten through some others. I definitely think we have. Uh, but So Sarah, having just gone through what we just went through, right? And I'm sorry that we had to relive it again. <laughs> we now need to talk about what they got right and what they got wrong. And this is a segment we call I'm sad this week because there's so much also. Yeah, this was another one of those movies where I felt like I struggled to find things that were right. Um, Is there anything right? uh, She can read, and that actually (laughs) is probably about right. Uh, Irish women, uh, Irish upper class women were actually fairly well educated, so that's cool. Um, the Irish were indeed involved in the slave trade and conducted slave raids off the coast of Britain, um, although the kill the slaves thing is a bit much. Yeah, that's good money. You don't want to be killing good money. Right, exactly. And as I said before, I mean, medieval slavery was, first of all, not really an ethnic, like it was not, I mean, it was an economic thing. It actually wasn't even really a particularly ethnic thing. They didn't believe that there are people who were suited by their uh, background to be slaves in the same way that modern slavery came to. Um, you know, they would have been perfectly fine with, I mean, they would have wanted to keep the slaves and sell them, but they wouldn't have killed them rather than have them escape. Hmm. So, basically, the only thing they've got right is that the Irish would have been collecting slaves. And that she can read. Oh, and well, I don't know. If <laughs> she might have been able to read, but I mean, she's Irish, so there's a good chance she probably wouldn't have been able to read either. And if she was, no, going to the be able... Irish were much better educated than the English at that time. They're Christians, so they are really into reading now. We we still are, sir. We still are. Better well, I mean, that at that time they were Christians, <laughs> and the British mostly weren't. But she still shouldn't have been able to read stuff from twelve centuries later. No, that's a bit much. So, what did they get wrong? So I've already brought up a couple of issues. Uh, first of all, I really cannot get over Tristan of Aragon, Aragon. It really bothers me. 
I don't know where they got this from, except for my weird theory, and it makes me deeply angry. It is incredibly <laughs> strange, because there, there is literally nowhere in Britain or Ireland that sounds like Aragon. They could have just picked any random place in Britain. There are a lot of place names in Britain. He's, Anything would have been better. He's Tristan of Leicester. Yeah, Tristan of York. And anything, yeah. anything would have been better. What about what about the politics of fifth century Britain? Did they get that correct? No, everything is wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the way this movie presents it is that Britain was like completely united under the Romans, which is also not really true. And then they had to reunite Britain, which is not happening in the fifth century. The uh, British kingdoms are developing at this time and were not united until at least about the ninth century is when the process really starts. Mm-hmm. Um. Another big issue that I have is that the likelihood that Tristan and Isolde would have had a common language is approximately zero. Yeah, because he only spoke dude bro. He would have spoken the two languages of dude bro and (laughs) Anglo-Saxon. Yeah, pretty much. Anglo-Saxon, the 5th century version of dude bro. (laughs) Um, And she would have spoken Irish as her vernacular because some women were educated and because they were Christianized, there's some possibility she would have also known Latin. Um, Him, there's no real reason to think he would have known Latin, at least not very well, especially because it's not clear, but I'm not sure there's much reason to think they're necessarily Christian. Um, There is a church in one of the scenes, but they don't go to it. Right. And historically, I would say most of the British kind of nobility or rulers in the fifth century would not have been. And the wedding scene jumps past the actual wedding ceremony straight to the um, reception. Right. So we don't see anything. So we can't tell from that if they're supposed to be Christian or not. So I think there's a good chance so, they, just, yeah. they didn't know themselves. And, and we're like, shit, would they have been Christians? Crap. Let's just pretend like it didn't happen. We can't ask a historian, so let's just move it along. Yeah, of course, they definitely did not. So, uh, in reality, if this movie had happened, there would have been a lot of just kind of awkward communicating through gestures because they would not have had a common language. (laughs) Definitely. Maybe they could have used the equivalent of Google Translate from back in the day. Exactly. See, this is 90 Day Fiancé. It's very much 90 Day Fiancé. I have been watching 90 Day Fiancé, and there's a couple that communicates through Google Translate. So (laughs) Absolutely amazing. (laughs) Um, now tell me about arranged marriages Sarah would they have been common in this time they would have been extremely common certainly anyone of certainly as old status and I imagine Tristan's as well or Mark's uh, would have certainly been marrying somebody who was you know a good choice probably their status mostly politically although of course money would have been a factor often um and that would have been the expectation. Certainly no woman would have expected to have had any choice whatsoever in her marriage. So is old. I'm being treated like chattel is frankly ridiculous. Now, is chattel an old word for cattle? I believe it's a more, it's a word that kind of generally just refers to property, which would include cattle, but would not be limited to cattle. Mm-hmm. Because I've seen it come up a few times, and it's generally, every time it's come up, it's gone, that's a weird way to say cattle. Cause no, I think it's a word that particularly refers to living property, um, oh. so that it would refer to any livestock or slaves. Yeah. Um, it might actually refer to kind of movable goods more broadly. I'm pretty sure you wouldn't use the term for real estate. 
Um, but otherwise, it's a fairly broadly used term. Perfect. Now, after that, Sarah, did to get the core of the legend correct? In some ways, yes. So basically, the kind of core of the Tristan Isolde legend is this love triangle um, between Isolde, who is married to Mark, um, but is in love with Tristan, that a big part of that is also that Tristan very much respects and loves Mark as a father figure. Wait, Mark Sarah, very much, yes. This sounds like you have a lot of information you want to tell us about this particular legend. I do. So we might want to move forward to our next segment. Ah, our next section, which is Historia et Veritas. And we're going to learn about the Tristan and Isolde legend. And uh, I was looking through Sarah's notes earlier, and this is incredibly fascinating to me because I've actually read this and didn't remember much or most of the stuff that uh, Sarah's about to tell us about. So, Sarah, let us know all about the Tristan and Isolde legend. Yeah, so there are a number of different versions. So I'm going to be, to some extent, kind of amalgamating them in a couple of places, noting where there are differences. Um, but essentially, so as I said, they've gotten this core right of this love triangle where Tristan is an, and Isolde are in love with one another. Tristan and Mark have a very kind of close relationship, a kind of father-son relationship where they respect each other a great deal. And... Mark loves Isolde and Isolde and, you know, wants her to be really his wife. And she, in turn, I would say, respects and cares for him, even though she's clearly pretty into Tristan. And that's mostly what we get here, except that I would say Isolde is a little bitchier about Mark. <laughs> um, now, what is Mark's status in the original story? He is the King of Cornwall, which is a place that you can be king of and is not the king of all of England because even in the 12th century when this was written, they knew that England was not united in the 5th century. Hmm. Um, So this is actually something that was written in terms of the versions that we have now um, by Anglo-Norman authors. So people who are writing in Old French um, who are in basically probably uh, one of the main authors of the early Tristan um, legend narratives, one of them probably based in Norman England, one of them probably actually based in Normandy, so in what is now France. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't know that much about the authors, but uh, they seem to have been probably influenced by troubadour culture and the courtly love tradition. And if that dynamic of the love triangle sounded familiar to you, it's because this is actually a narrative that influenced the Arthurian love triangle between Guinevere, Lancelot, and Arthur. Hmm. It's very, very similar to Guinevere, Lancelot, and Arthur, in so much as Guinevere, I think, is meant to be much younger than Arthur, and Lancelot is meant to be roughly his age or her age. And I think that that's what they were going for by casting Rufus Sewell, cutting his hair short and making it slightly gray. Right, they're attempting to make him look less attractive. It's not working. It's just, it doesn't do a good job at all, right? Um, Now, Tristan and Isolde in our movie are dicks, right? Or uh, jerks and idiots, as I've seen them written down here. Is that how they are in the main story or the original story? So in the original story, their behavior is a bit more forgivable because they are acting under the influence of a love potion. In some versions, Isolde is a bit of... did you say a love potion? I did say a love potion. Awesome. So we've got a little, we've got a little bit of magic going on. Mm-hmm. Bring um, the magic. So 
in some versions, because they did kind of hate women in the 12th century, um, uh, Isolde is quite the temptress. And in fact, is she is given the love potion to give to Mark and instead chooses to give it to Tristan. In mm-hmm. other cases, they basically, I guess, just screw up and drink it by accident. <laughs> <laughs> so in effect, they are basically slipping on some wine and ending up <laughs> having Exactly. Sex. It's, the, uh, it's the medieval kind of magical <laughs> version of uh, we just slipped and fell and all of a sudden, you know, I was inside her. <laughs> uh, uh, Sarah. <laughs> Um, so in some versions, it lasts for a lifetime. In other versions, it does last only three years, although it then seems to have had something of a kind of lasting effect and they were still very interested in each other. Um, but regardless, this at least does free them from some responsibility for their atrocious behavior. I don't know. Even with that, I don't think it, oh, stop. It's just wrong. Well, because the potion essentially makes them unable to control themselves. I mean, that's uh, the idea behind the potion. So basically, it's giving our uh, heroes a chance to be less cheatery and um, adulterous. Right, that they're committing adultery, but it's supposed to be kind of more forgivable, or at least they bear less personal responsibility for it. Because they've been drugged. Hmm. Yeah. I get you, I get you. And yeah. then, does Mark forgive them? No, Mark, as would actually make much more sense for a medieval husband, is not thrilled by this situation. So... Our Tristan and Isolde in the original legend seem to have been much more subtle than our Tristan and Isolde in this and actually seem to do a pretty good job of hiding their affair through various subterfuges. But Mark does eventually discover it. His immediate reaction is to have them executed. Hmm. They manage to escape. (gasps) And when Mark finds them, he has mercy in terms of not executing them. But nor is he like, Oh, you kids just go be happy. Go, instead, he go get it on. You two are so pretty together. Yeah. Instead, he takes his old back, and Tristan agrees to leave the kingdom. He then weirdly marries a different woman named Isolde, which is a little weird. Uh, yeah, it was Isolde a common name back in the day. I mean, it certainly wasn't in the twelfth century. Oh. Um, it's it's sort of a weird name. I mean, it's. It's very much kind of a name that they thought of as like an old fashioned name in the 12th century, basically. Yeah, don't worry about this. It's coming up in my fabula nostra um, when we have <laughs> to work with our own versions. But uh, I just can't get over the name is old. And uh, that's why my entire fake movie is based around that. Um, do Mark and Tristan ever actually fight with each other? In some versions, yes. So in some versions, he like shows up again and starts serenading Isolde with a harp and he can tr- and Mark kills him with a poisoned lance, which honestly you can kind of get. Mm-hmm. In other versions, Tristan in various other adventures gets wounded by somebody else with a poisoned lance. But then it turns out that only the original Isolde is able to heal him. So he then has his friend that he tells to sail back to Cornwall, bring his old with him, and, you know, hopefully she'll be able to heal him. And further instructs him that they should have on the ship black sails if she's not with him or white sails if she is. And mm. although his old does agree to come back, Tristan's jealous wife, the other old, lies about the color of the sails and Tristan dies of grief. All right, coming back with 
black sails and white sails sounds very Homer-esque to me. Any other occurrences of Tristan or Isolde in historical fiction? Yeah, so starting in the 13th century, Tristan then also starts to be integrated into some versions of Arthurian legend. So Tristan is often presented as a knight of the round table. Um, He's a participant in the Grail quest. And so there is this linkage created, which is interesting, of course, also because, as I said, the whole narrative of Tristan and Isolde is very much an influence on the Lancelot Guinevere Arthur story. Yeah, so maybe because it was an oral tradition, the story kind of got mixed in with the Arthurian stories that were being written at the time. And you end up with Tristan showing up in the Holy Grail quest. And because I would say Arthurian legend becomes just so incredibly popular that I think there is an interest in kind of integrating other things into it, Mm. um, you know, as a way of kind of drawing those stories into a kind of broader narrative that's important to a lot of people. Yeah, that's... I didn't know most of that stuff. That's very interesting. So this was, would this have been a popular story to write? So if you were saying it got first written in the 12th century or so, would this have been a popular story in that time period? Or is it something that was basically forgotten once the Arturian legend showed up? So I'd say it is something that's fairly popular, but that never had quite the popularity of Arthurian legend. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I think, one of the reasons that it does end up probably getting kind of co-opted into the Arthurian narrative is as a way of kind of keeping it current for a lot of people. Yeah, because I imagine that most people wouldn't know the names Tristan and Isolde. But as soon as they watch the story, they'll know straight away, well, oh, well, this is basically Lancelot and Guinevere. Right. And it certainly is a narrative that's much less popular, although it does get, you know, a number of medieval retellings. There's a bunch of versions in, I think, especially the 12th and 13th, and I think into the 14th century as well. There's a bunch of versions of Tristan and Isolde. There's also an opera, I believe, from the 18th or 19th century. An opera, you say, featuring some wonderful singing, I imagine. Um, I'm sure. Speaking of which, we're going to move on to our next section. The next section (laughs) Sing away. we talk about a version of the movie that we would make based on the name Tristan and Isolde and then this is a thing we like to call Fabula Nostra Sarah. So I think this time you actually should go first. I usually go first. I get to go first. Okay. <clears throat> I kind of talked a little bit about this while you were going through your Veritas, right? I can't get over the name Tristan and Isolde. Right? I just can't. It's just something <laughs> weird about it, right? Because I, I live in Ireland. Very few people are called Tristan in Ireland. So this isn't a name I grew up with. And I know it might be more popular in the States and it might be more popular in fancy It's not popular in the bits. States. It's what a few like very rich, obnoxious people name their children. Well, I've only ever met one Tristan. He was an ass bag. His name was Tristan. What's his name? Oh, God, I, well, maybe I shouldn't read out his second name. But his dad was a poet. Um. And we can, <laughs> Tristan Rosenstock is his name, right? And his dad's Gabriel Rosenstock, and he's a poet, whatever, like, and that's fine. But he was just a complete douche, right? And he was actually named after Tristan of Tristan and Isolde, right? <laughs> to set this in the modern time period, right? And mm. I want to have two star-crossed lovers, Tristan from one rich douchebag family and Isolde from another rich douchebag family. Right, and they're going to meet and they're going to fall in love. They're going to meet in college. They're going to be doing the same course. Everything is going to be fabulous for them, but it's going to turn out that 
Isolde, while she was in high school, started dating a dude who was in college at that time. And mm. they have developed a love. It's been a long-distance relationship. He's mm-hmm. a nice guy, and she doesn't want to hurt him, while at the same time boning down repeatedly with Tristan. Right? Oh, and then come on, Isolde. When they both leave college, they're going to be qualified as accountants. Right? Because I wanted to pick the most boring job that these two people could do <laughs> because this movie already bored me to tears. So they're going to be accountants and they're going to start working in the accountancy firm of her boyfriend. Oh. And they're going to have to try and keep it secret from him the entire time. However, another up and coming guy sees that Tristan is the golden boy because he's very good at accountancy because we can't have him being really good at sword fighting or whatever so he's really Mm -hmm. good with his numbers and he discovers that they're having the affair and he tries to get them to split up and basically reveals that they've been doing this to see if mark will you know basically flip his lid and fire them or whatever it happens to be goes on in the movie right so there's going to be conflict there's going to be love there's going to be cheating there's going to be basically being assholes neither of them are going to be decent people they're both going to be rich spoiled little rich kids <laughs> who are going off and doing their own thing now i've decided to cast ty sheridan mm-hmm. as tristan because he's basically a young james franco like that's that's what mm. he looks like right i'm going to cast emma watson as his old because I think she could do a good vacuous rich girl impression. That would be a really interesting. That would be really interesting to see. Hmm. And then, as Mark, I'm going to cast, and this is one I, I, I thought a lot about. Right? We need him to be handsome, but also not so likable. Right. As to because, like, yes. In this movie, it was Rufus Sewell, and clearly he was a better bet. But he wanted to be a handsome dude, but not like super likable and relatable. Because I originally thought to myself, I could put Chris Pine in this role. Mm. Like, you know, he's about 10 years older than him. He could have been playing an older dude and whatever. But I decided against that. So I've gone with Tom Welling, who used to be Superman oh. on Smallville. And mm-hmm. nowadays, he's in his, I think he's in his early 30s. He's still super handsome, but he's just got that aloofness of him. It's like he's too handsome. To be right, and he seems kind of dude. like a bit of a jerk. And he seems kind of like a bit of a jerk. So even though he might not be a jerk, he just has that face which says, you're a jerk. It's the same as, um, he'd be a little bit older now, but James Marsden has that look about him. Yeah. It's like, you like even when he's not doing anything wrong, you're still like, eh, he's a bit of a dick. You could play a dick. Yeah. And then playing Victor, um, I was thinking again, like, he has to be somebody who does smarm really well. He's going to be an older dude. He's going to be roughly Tom Welling's age in this, right? He's going to be just not particularly good at his job, but smarmy and likable enough that he's convincing people to his argument. So I thought, who better than the cast in that role than the king of smarmy handsomeness as he is at the minute, Mr. Army Hammer. And mm. because Army, as we know, is a beautiful man. Mm-hmm. But also, you know he's an assback. Like, you right. know, you know Army Hammer would stab you in the back. He was the <clears throat> bloody Winkelvoss twins or whatever they were in uh, in Social Network. He he was the Lone Ranger. Like, we know this right. guy. 
he's definitely going to smarm his way out of this sort of stuff. So that's what I'm going to cast. So it's going to be set in the modern day. They're going to be accountants who fall in love in college the whole while she's had this distance boyfriend or this distance relationship with a guy who's not a bad dude. But maybe isn't the person that she wants to be with because he's he's just that seven or eight years too old for her. Right. There we go. And, and maybe she's just, you know, not that into him. Maybe, maybe their relationship she's... just doesn't work as much as she thought it did. Yeah. And distance relationships are hard. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what my movie's going to be. I like that. So you have come up with something really creative and I'm just going to say, why can't it be more like the medieval, the medieval, the original medieval version? That's still creative, Sarah. Tell me what <laughs> you would like. What would you like to integrate into it? So I want our cool magic back. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to have like a fun thing with like there are sorcerers and they have this love potion. And so then maybe they seem like slightly less jerks because they just take this love potion by accident. And all of a sudden, you know, they have these feelings that they can't really deal with or get rid of because they're essentially being drugged. And, uh, you know, they're trying to deal with this. Hmm. So I actually want to keep Rufus Sewell as Mark because while Rufus Sewell is very charming, as we learn from a movie that we'll be doing in the future on this podcast, A Knight's Tale, Rufus Sewell can also play an amazing villain if he wants to. Mm-hmm. He can also play Smarmy from another movie we're going to watch in this particular podcast, Dangerous Beauty. Um, yes. Where he can he can play highly sexual, Sarah. Yes. So I'm not thinking jerk necessarily, or well... I'm thinking at least very just kind of stern, maybe not the most approachable, maybe a little bit of a jerk, not necessarily the most likable, certainly somebody who's not going to be incredibly forgiving in this kind of situation. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to age down our Tristan and Isolde actors because one of the things I think that makes the original legend also make much more sense is that there's a much greater age difference And so you understand a little bit more why, you know, they might also, even beyond the love potion, why there also might this be this kind of feeling of incompatibility, and why also he would be more of a kind of father figure to a much younger Tristan. Mm -hmm. So who are you going to have for Tristan? So for Tristan, because in part because I was watching this and I was thinking... You know, I'm not sure I buy James Franco as a really successful warrior. Mm. He just, it's not that he's unattractive or anything like that. It's just that he's really not giving off that I am the greatest warrior in the world vibe. Mm -hmm. So I decided that what we really need here is a nice masculine Hemsworth. But that yeah, Chris yeah. Hemsworth is, is, a Chris? is a little bit old. Is it Chris? No, Chris is, it Chris? is a little bit old, so we're Sarah, going with is Liam. It Chris? Is it Chris? No, we're going. No, we're going with Mini Hemsworth. We're going it, with Liam Hemsworth. Is it Chris? <laughs> no, we're going to go with Liam Hemsworth because he's younger. God. Chris God. can maybe make a side appearance. Oh, Chris! Well, as long as Chris is going to be in the movie, I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, he can. He can be like one of the other knights. Maybe he and yeah. he and Tristan can bond. But yeah, so the slightly slightly younger Liam Hemsworth I'm going to have as our Tristan. And then, you know, I'm going to like really like play up the Irish and cast a nice redhead as our Isolde. I I just, (laughs) I've seen this now. I've seen who you're casting as redhead. And before you go on, I want to say that I think this actress is terrible. I think she's terrible on the show she's on. I think she's terrible in every movie I've ever seen her in. I think she is 
genuine. I'm sure she's a lovely human being and she's really nice and sweet. I'm sure she's seven foot tall, but terrible actress. So I'm casting Sophie Turner, who I think is really coming into her own on Game of Thrones. Although she should never, ever, ever do an American accent again. And the fact that she is trying to do one in X-Men is such a disaster. It's very funny. But I think she is improving in Game of Thrones. And I think she would be interesting to see as our is old. The problem she has in Game of Thrones is that last season she was acting across from um, Maisie Williams. Who yeah, who is, is fantastic. Four years younger than her and is acting her off the stage or off the screen. So that is true. But I would say also, I mean, is Zold is a kind of weird character in that she does not have the strongest personality in general. Mm-hmm. And I think that the way Sophie Turner plays Sansa as somebody who is not necessarily the kind of strongest figure, but who is sort of gradually coming into her own. And I think that's reflected in some way in her acting, I think could be a really interesting way to do this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And do you have anybody else? Do you have a Victorid or do you have another character? So I have another character. Um, so uh, when I was doing my little bit of research and reminding myself what happened in the Tristan legend, I had to say I was a little bit annoyed that there is another major female character in the original legend that they decided to just get rid of because God forbid we have two women in a movie. Yeah, definitely. How can you have two? Like, So I would like to bring back our friend uh, Isolde, our other Isolde, Tristan's wife, um, who is known as Isolde of the White Hands. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I kind of want to play up the fact that she's you know, has this similar name and that maybe she has some kind of slight physical resemblance to her. So I wanted to go with another redhead. Um, so this is an American who will have to pull a British accent, but we'll hope for the best on her. Wait, this ca- this lady's red-haired? Yes. Isn't she? No. She isn't some things I've seen. She wasn't saved. Is she a redhead? She's played redhead before, at least. Oh, nice. Uh, who I don't know what her like? natural hair color is. Um, so I'm going to bring in Jenna Malone. <gasps> From the Hunger Games? Catch From the Hunger fire. Games, which is actually, uh, although I've seen her in other things that I've really liked her in, one of the reasons that I decided I wanted to bring her in for this is because I think she does a really good job in the Hunger Games playing somebody who is sympathetic, but who is like a little bit mean and snarky. And intense. And intense. And I think that is totally what we would want to see from Isolde of the White Hands as somebody who I would like to play as a definitely ultimately understandable and sympathetic figure because it definitely I'm sure would be really shitty to, you know, marry this man and have it turn out he's completely in love with this other woman that he doesn't get to hang out with because she's married to somebody else. Yeah. And also, that would be a not great situation. Also, Jenna Malone is a beautiful woman. Yeah, no, um, she's also so Liam yeah. Hemsworth should just be happy. Just be happy, Liam. Exactly, which is the kind of situation with Isolde, with the Isolde of the White Hands in the original story, is that like there's nothing wrong with her. She's great. It's just that he is still in love with this other woman. So I think having somebody who is this kind of very intense, um, uh, but also like, you know, very beautiful, very intelligent woman playing the character, I think would be a really great way to go. Yeah, I think that's that's a good choice. I, I would watch this movie. I like the idea of them getting like love potioned from some sort of evil person. I'd like to even think that the victor is the one who slips it to them. 
Right, yeah, and there could be, like, some kind of similar character. Hey, maybe I'll bring back Mark Strong. Mark Strong's really good at playing a bad guy in medieval movies. Super good at playing a bad guy in every movie. Yeah, he can Um, be the one who kind of, like, you know, sneaks it in so he can maybe kind of get at Mark somehow. Be fun. So we come to our last section, which is where we give a rating and maybe even a review. We're going to call it a rating, and we're going to say... Estimatio. <laughs> that was so bad. <laughs> it's great. I think we're going to keep going with that. So, Sarah, you can go first. What rating would you give this movie? So, I really enjoyed watching this movie, but I will say I enjoyed watching this movie because I enjoyed making fun of this movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a good bad movie. It is a it's a solid good bad movie in certain ways. I actually would not say don't watch this movie. I would say you know watch this movie with a friend with whom you enjoy making fun of movies. Um, but you know I f- find it very irritating in general. As I've said this before, I feel like I should not have to work that hard to find things that aren't wrong in movies I, about the Middle Ages. I agree. Yeah. Uh, There are some things in particular that I think are pretty unforgivable as far as accuracies and inaccuracies go. The invented unification of Britain, I think, is a bit much, honestly, if you're doing anything but an Arthurian legend where he at least was supposed to have done that. Hmm. It's not like Mark was even supposed to be doing that in the original legend. Not, Not in the time period, anyway. No. And so, as I said, they do have kind of imaginary versions of Arthur where he's doing that. But as I said, that's at least a kind of medieval error as opposed to a modern error. Yeah. Um, so that bothers me. Um, in general, I will say the acting is not amazing, except for Rufus Sewell. Um, he's very good. Rufus Sewell is fantastic. Tristan and Isolde have no chemistry. It's really unfortunate. It's negative chemistry, sir. I said it's so bad. Yeah, and so the like, we can't keep our hands off each other. Like we're trying so hard, but we just can't possibly not have sex. It's like, really? Because you look like you could not have sex. Admittedly, in still shots of the movie, the two of them are very attractive people. Yeah, I mean they're both very attractive, but attractiveness is not the end-all and be-all of sexual chemistry, and they have no sexual chemistry. That is true. So, so what would you give it overall? So I'm going to go ahead and give this a 2 out of 5. It actually, I would say, could even be a bit lower, and I moved it up from a 1, basically mostly on the grounds of historical inaccuracies, to a 2, mostly because of Rufus Sewell, but in part because... You know, I'll knock it up a little bit on the grounds of uh, this was enjoyable as a good bad movie. Yeah, you've given it a Sewell star, and when I'm yep. doing my other movies, rating or rating other movies with my friends, if Jason Statham is in it, it automatically gets an extra star because it's got the Statham star because he's like the most charismatic dude in Hollywood, right? So, yeah, well, I do that uh, with Rufus Sewell <laughs> after The Rock. So um, Rufus Sewell gets his uh, gets a Sewell star. I am also going to give this two out of five, um, mostly because. When I go to watch these movies, I want to see two things. I want to see very good fight and action scenes. And I want to see a storyline that makes sense. Right? As long as you can give me those two things. So a storyline that makes logical sense based on what's been happening in the movie. And action scenes. Like Each of those is going to get two out of five automatically, right? <laughs> 
but this movie manages to fail on both of those. Um, mm. Like the action sequences, the like the little fight at the beginning with the kids with the wooden swords is the only decent actual fight <laughs> in the movie. And it's little kids fighting with wooden swords. Um, other than that, there all the rest of the scenes are a little bit overly convoluted and dark and happening in weird angles and showing close-ups of a dude's arms as they're swinging their swords because, you know, it shows the inhumanness of a battle, I suppose. I'm not sure. It's just... The Middle Ages was very violent. It was. Of course it was very violent. Um, So I'm taking one of the stars off for that there. I'm taking one of the stars off because I literally, for the life of me, cannot figure out most of the decision-making process that Tristan has all. Like, there are two main characters. He is a petulant child. She is an idiot. Like, I genuinely don't get yeah. it. They, like, she meets Rufus Sewell. It's Rufus Sewell, for God's sake. We all know he's a beautiful man. We, the character he's playing, Mark, is about as nice as it's possible to get for a nobleman of this time period. He's one step away from walking out and healing the sick himself. Right? I mean, he's nicer than any actual medieval nobleman in this period. Yeah, exactly. There's no, like, he's basically, you've won the lotto here, love, right? He's a very attractive older man who seems very relaxed, very calm. People love him. He's going to be the king. You're going to be the queen. And you can't stop yourself from fucking James Franco. Because you met him for like two weeks. Two weeks. Uh, but you fell in love despite the fact that you had one full conversation. That's what right. it seems to have been. And I just, that sort of logic doesn't make any sense to me. Um, Melote's character arc is that he is an idiot because he doesn't even have anything to be jealous of Tristan for, really. Tristan is making no right. effort towards being the next king. I guess it's just that Mark likes him more. That's but all I mean, of it. Yeah, I like you more, so I'll, I better be a dick now. I'm going to have to betray you, Mark, because you like somebody else more. Like So that sort of stuff takes off marks for me. I'm going to give it two overall because I like a lot of the actors in it. I like, uh, I like the way the Irish are portrayed as they're the bad guys so we don't have to show them doing anything good they're the bad guys let them be the bad guys they're very unapologetically evil unapologetically evil um there's a movie that i kind of like which i know a lot of people don't call the patriot um set in the american civil war oh no so yeah. the american war of independence yep and it, it's got our favorite dickhead uh mel gibson in it right the british in that movie could not be shown to be more evil than they are. Because it's Jason Isaacs, Lucius Malfoy. It's Lucius Malfoy. But they just make them incredible. Like everything. They're one step away from spitting acid and burning children at the stake, right? Yeah. And I like that because you then have, these are the good guys, these are the bad guys. I don't need to have these moral shades of gray, right? Now, mm -hmm. it's a very simple storytelling. That's what they've done in this movie. And I appreciate the fact that they didn't try... Like, even she is... Show, is Like, she's our heroine. She's shown to be so different from her dad and all the rest of the other Irish because mm -hmm. she's educated and she's reading and blah, 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 blah. She has no designs on being powerful. She's At no point does she say, oh, I'm going to be queen or anything like this here. She just... The only thing she wants is Tristan 
everybody else is an evil Irish person. And again, even though it's my own country, I appreciate that. So <laughs> because of the fact that I like a lot of the actors, I think the ones that are working well, Mark Strong's, Rufus Tools, are doing a good job. I'm going to give it a two out of five as well. Okay. So we are we are in agreement. Uh, watch this as a solid good-bad movie. <laughs> It's a solid, good, bad movie. It's much better if you have somebody to take the piss out of it like we did. Um, but yeah, it, it's the, it is genuinely, it's the kind of thing, there's another podcast called We Hate Movies which say that movies can be hangover movies. This is a good hangover movie. Yeah. You can have this all in the background and just relax and it's long enough that it's going to hold your attention and allow you to recover and it's not complicated enough so that even if you fall asleep and miss a half hour, you're pretty much still going to get the gist. And otherwise, you can listen to our podcast and we'll remind you what happened in the middle. We'll remind you exactly what happened. Sarah. So I I was just going to say I do, as still for people watching this as a hangover movie, as your friendly neighborhood medieval historian, I would like to remind you it's all wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Sarah, would you like to talk to our listeners? with us i would love to so first of all if you have been enjoying this podcast please rate and review us on itunes slash apple podcasts or your preferred podcasting platform and also if you have any feedback for us we encourage you to get in touch with us via email our email address is media.evilpod at gmail.com that's m-e-d-i-a dot e-v-a-l at gmail.com and uh, you can also find us on Twitter at MediaEvilPod, where I will occasionally tweet things relevant to this podcast and the Middle Ages. And I will never tweet because I do not know how. If you want to find me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me under my real name. So you can find me at Sarah Itch Decker on either of those platforms. Um, and Ali, where else can they find you on the internet? You can find me at my other podcast. I do one called Best Acquaintances with my best friend, Emily. And you can find us in the Best Acquaintances podcast group on Facebook as well, which is just full of nice people doing nice stuff. Absolutely. That's good. Sarah, so now that we've done all that, where we talked about how you can get in contact with us, what movie shall we do next week? Next week, we are going to do Timeline. And Sarah, are we going to have a special guest? We are going to have a special guest. We are going to have my mother, Beth Greenfeld, um, who is going to join us for this movie, which, spoiler alert, she loves, and she and I might have somewhat different opinions on. (laughs) So that will be fun for everyone. I cannot wait for this. And also, I can't wait for another thing, because this will be my first chance to show off that I know stuff too. Yes, because you have expertise about time travel and whether or not it works, which is an important part of this movie. It doesn't, but I'll talk to you about physics all day long. Um, Sarah, it's an absolute pleasure to record you. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. You too, Ali. It's never a pleasure to talk to you. It's always a pleasure to record with you. Talking to you is a terrible chore. Right. I mean, I hate talking to you, but recording with you is fun. Oh, it's it's always great. Um, I can't wait to chat to you next week. I'm looking forward to chatting to your mom again. And we'll leave it there. Good luck, everyone. Right. We, I... should get, we should get a, a sign-off, Sarah. How about we get a sign-off like uh, Excelsior, listeners? <laughs> let's get medieval on you. <laughs> yeah, let's get medieval on this. <laughs>
Okay, I'm going to stop it there because I think that's right. good enough for the end. Yep. <laughs>